Okay, welcome to the third session of Let's Keep the Amazing in Grace. This one is entitled The Two Adams. If you didn't hear last week's message, go back and listen because it's foundational. We talked about how God is not counting our sins against us, how He's not angry with us, how there's nothing we could ever do that He hasn't already forgiven us. And why is that? It's because of His great demonstration of love, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. Tonight, I'm going to go back to the beginning. I'm going to go back to Genesis and talk about the two trees in the garden, how we got to where we are. I'm going to talk about splitting the atoms and why, uh, what we believe is so important to the power of the gospel being expressed in our lives. David wrote about God's original intent for mankind in Psalm 8. He wrote, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. And that word crown is, is not a tiara. It means an all-encompassing covering. So God covered man with glory and majesty. Majesty is hadar in Hebrew, and it means, it means honor and splendor. And it says, you make him to rule over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. So God covered man in glory. Glory, kavod, kavod in the Hebrew, and it means the goodness of God in the widest sense. And God covered Adam, covered man in that glory, which in that glory is also the heavy weight of God's authority. So Adam was covered in that authority, and when Adam spoke, it carried weight. In Genesis 1, then God said, in verse 26, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Now, who's that talking about? It's talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then he blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. But what happened to the glory and majesty that God covered man with? Tragically, he forfeited it. And he forfeited that authority to an outlaw spirit called Satan. And since that time, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that, that fall short, that phrase fall short, it means forfeited. It means like forfeiting a game, like being behind in the race and not reaching the goal of the glory of God. Well, how did man forfeit the glory of God? Well, let's go back to the beginning to see. In Genesis 2, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward of Eden, and there he put a man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God put the tree of life in the midst of the garden. And that Hebrew word, tabek, means in the center, in the middle. That's where he put the tree of life. And he also mentions the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but not, with, not in regard to its position. When you think of the tree of life, I want you to think of Jesus, the giver of life. He is in the center, and everything is peripheral to him. In verse 15, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And that word Eden is pleasure. So God put Adam in the garden of pleasure and told him to tend it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, have you ever thought, and it's okay if you have, have you ever thought why? Why did God put that tree there? And why did He let the serpent into the garden? Why? It seems so unfair. I have actually asked those questions. And if you haven't needed to, well, thank God. But as Jude 22 says, be merciful to those who doubt. It's okay to ask questions. And there is one who can answer every question, and that is the Holy Spirit. Jesus said He would guide us into all truth, and He can answer our questions. I don't have all the answers yet, but I, I do know more than I'm going to tell you tonight because I've taught on it before and I've researched it. But I want to tell you, I want to boil down one thing that, that I feel like is really, really probably the bottom line of why that tree was in the garden. It is because it is in the choice that God gave Adam and Eve that we see the amazing love of God. He did not create robots. Love is a choice. And God risked that we would make the wrong choice by creating us in His likeness. He chose to love us. And we choose to receive that love or to reject that love. To receive His grace or reject His grace. Now, we often think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as bad and the tree of life as good. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not bad because according to Genesis 1.31, everything that God created was good. But this tree just wasn't good for man. So what is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Is it an apple, as so many illustrations portray? No, it is not an apple. Apples come from apple trees. So uh, the fruit of the tree is the knowledge of good and evil. Now, does God not want us to have the knowledge of good and evil? Well, yes, He does. Now, and He has given every single person a conscience which is able to discern good from evil. And our thoughts, as it says in Romans 2.15, sometimes they accuse us and sometimes they defend us. But what was God's original intent? He never wanted us to know evil. He never wanted us to experience evil. He never wanted us to feel shame or condemnation or to be sick or to even die. That wasn't His original intent. His desire was that man would trust Him, believe Him, receive His love, and eat from the tree of life, and eat as much as He wanted of life, abundant life, eternal life. Now, I'm going to use some analogies, and I'm going to paint a very broad picture here. 
I'm telling you, I'm boiling down. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to religion, which is to the law, which says you are what you do, which is to self-righteousness, which means your righteousness depends on yourself. The tree of life is to the gospel, which is to grace, which says we are as Jesus is, which is to Christ's righteousness, which is given to us as a free gift. So just keep that in mind as we look at Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Well, now the devil twisted God's words and portrayed him as stingy. God had actually said, Of every tree you may freely eat, except the one that would harm them. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, I'm seeing that word midst, which is that Hebrew word tevek again, which is center. The tree of life was in the center of the garden. But what is in the center of her mind is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the one fruit she's been forbidden to eat. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So it was at that point that Adam and Eve bought into the lie that they had to do something to be something that they already were. They were already created in the image and likeness of God. So the great deception, the greatest deception in humanity is the lie that man could be like God, independent of God. And that was the fall in the garden. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasing to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave to her husband, and where was he? With her. And he ate... And that made me think of that, you know, evil triumphs when good men do nothing. So then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. Now, in Genesis 2.25, it says that they were naked and unashamed. They were covered in the glory of God. And when you're covered in the glory of God, you're unashamed. But here they are, their eyes are opened, but not to being more like God, as Satan had told them, but to their nakedness and to their shame. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. That's the first mention of fig leaves in the Bible, and it's significant. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? So Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And I want you to notice that God came looking for them. He never turned his back on Adam and Eve. He said, Who told you that you were naked? And I read that one day and I thought, It's like God saying, Who told you that there was something wrong with you? And why did you believe that lie? What I have created cannot be improved on. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? Consciousness of sin brought condemnation, which produced the first act of self-righteousness in the human race, which was the fig leaves. 
Self-righteousness is one of two basic results of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're going to talk about the other one in just a minute. But self-righteousness involves masks, involves hidden sin, pushing perception instead of reality. It leads to ill-fitting burdens, to striving, to hypocrisy, to pretending to be something that you're not. And it's all a result of trying to be right in others' eyes and in God's eyes, independent of God's grace. And we can still put on fig leaves today. We can still try to cover our sin and our shame and our failures and try to create a perception that looks good to everybody. And with God, self-righteousness is when we go to Him, we try to make ourselves right with God. We try to... uh, enter His presence by doing a series of things like making a list of to-dos. And in that list might be confession, repentance, asking for forgiveness over and over, trying to make ourselves righteous enough to approach the throne of grace, which is actually an oxymoron. You cannot make yourself deserving of grace because it's only for the undeserving. And I want to talk about those three words, confession, repentance, and forgiveness, for just a second. Confession. That is the Greek word homologia, and it means to say the same thing with. To say the same thing with. And as believers, we are told, as in Hebrews 10.23, to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. What is our confession of hope? Is it that we are dirty, rotten sinners? No. It is that we are righteous in Jesus, that we are eternally alive. Our hope is actually heaven one day, right? And we're actually seated there in our spirit right now. So we want to say the same thing that God says about us. Repentance is the Greek word metanoia. It means a change of one's mind. Repentance does not mean that we change our behavior. It doesn't mean that we're sorry or apologetic. It doesn't even mean that we change our direction, although that might be the result of repentance. Repentance is metanoia. Meta means change. Noia means mind. And Jesus described the exact repentance that we needed when He started His earthly ministry. In Mark 1, in verse 14, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and said this, and say, the time is fulfilled. That's our Greek word, kairos. He said, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent from that old way of thinking, that religious way of thinking, and believe in the gospel, the good news that is the power for our salvation. And that word soteria, as you remember, is everything. It's our healing. It's our deliverance. It's our provision. It's heaven. And then forgiveness is the Greek word aphesis, and it means letting go, letting go of our sins as if they'd never been committed. God let go of the debt of our sins because the debt has been paid by Jesus. In Ephesians 1, it says, in Jesus, we have redemption. We're not trying to get it. We have it through His blood, which is the payment. The forgiveness of sins. Now, is this according to the confession of each and every sin? No, it is according to the riches of His grace. 
And the day that we can measure the riches of His grace is the day we're going to know how much we've been forgiven. We have been forgiven. Past tense. We aren't forgiven as we go. We're not going to be forgiven at some point in the future. All of our sins, past, present, future, have all been paid for at the cross. And that forgiveness was free to us. But it came at a great cost. The redemption in Jesus' blood. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I want to briefly mention one other point, which is the topic of 1 John 1.9. This is in, in the realm of forgiveness of sins and confession. I'm not going to dwell on it. You could look at it in chapter 5 of Unveiling Jesus. I go into a little bit more detail. But this is a verse that people have used to support the idea that a believer needs to confess each and every sin in order to be forgiven hourly, at least daily, hourly, maybe minute by minute. Let's look at the verse. If we confess confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, 1 John 1.9 is the only verse in all of the epistles that even mentions confession of sins to God. And this verse, if you look in the context of the chapter, chapter 1 of 1 John, the Apostle John is speaking to the unbeliever and inviting them to come to Jesus, confess that they are sinners in need of God's grace. And Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, never mentioned the confession of sins even once. If it was so important, why did he not even mention it? While it may be a good intention to remove a perceived barrier by constantly asking for forgiveness again and again and again, it will frustrate the grace of God in your life because you are trying to do something that has already been done. The debt has been paid. If you keep on asking for forgiveness again and again, sometimes for the same sin, which is what I did, again and again and again, it is like asking Jesus to go to the cross again. He is not going to do that. Once was enough. The debt has been paid. So what should we do when we fail? Let's see our sin. Let's look to Jesus on the cross where He took our sin. And let's just get on our knees and thank Him and be grateful. Turn our eyes upon Jesus and not on ourselves and our constant consciousness of what we do. Now back to Genesis 3 and the other result of eating from the wrong tree. After God had said, Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The devil made me do it. So you see the man blamed the woman. He also blamed God for giving him the woman. And the woman blamed the devil. So you see the other result from eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is victimization. Victimization. With victimization, you cannot take responsibility. It's always someone else's fault. And because of that, you will always see limits. 
There's going to be limited resources, scarcity, glass ceilings, the, ha the glass half empty. The grass is always greener, right? If someone gets a piece of the pie, there's less for you. So there's always envy and jealousy and anger and unforgiveness. I'm telling you, victimization is about the most debilitating state you can be in. With grace, the pie is limitless. Jesus came to bring abundant life, more than you can ask or imagine, with plenty to go around. Twelve baskets full left over. So victimization and self-righteousness are close cousins. They're both rooted in pride. They both point the finger at man. With victimization, you're pointing at the other person. With self-righteousness, you're pointing at yourself, but neither is pointing to Jesus. In John 3, 20, uh, Genesis 3.21, we do see a verse that points to Jesus. For Adam and his wife, the Lord, made tunics of skin and clothed clothed them. This is the first mention of the shedding of blood in the Bible. And this is a picture of Jesus who would be, one day be the Lamb of God who would shed His blood and he, is, he would become not just a covering. His blood would actually take sin away and remove it. Now, I want to go back to Adam for just a second and talk about the word nature and a theological term called federal headship. So the Bible talks about two Adams. The first Adam was the first human whom we've been talking about, and the other is Jesus, who's called the last Adam. So the first Adam was from the old creation, and the last Adam is the firstborn of the new creation who are partakers of the divine nature of God. 1 Corinthians 15 and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, speaking of Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. How else, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth made of dust, and the second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust so also are those made of dust. And we were all made of dust. We were born in a body of flesh. But listen to this. As is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. Who is that? Those who are born of God. Now, when I was born the first time, I received the biological nature of my parents, the physical DNA in a body of flesh. But I also received the spiritual DNA of first Adam. In Romans 5.12 it says, Through one man, that would be Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men. Did you know that you're not a sinner because you sinned? You're a sinner because you were born in Adam's sin. Now, that doesn't sound fair, but I promise we got the long end of this stick because when we were born again, we received the nature of our heavenly Father, His spiritual DNA in our spirit where we were made alive by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Son of God. John 3, Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, 
Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, that's our natural birth, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Flesh begets flesh. Spirit begets spirit. Like produces like, and that's been the law of nature since the beginning. 2 Corinthians 5, 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. We do not regard anyone, even ourselves, by our behavior or things of the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him, thus no longer. Jesus came in the flesh as us to become our sin. But we don't regard Him in the flesh anymore because He has been glorified. He has been raised and seated at the right hand of God. We too are there, spiritually speaking, right? As He is, so are we. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And that Greek word is kainos. And it means fresh, unused, unworn, of a new kind, unprecedented, uncommon. The new creation is unstained with the guilt of anything. The new creation has no history of sin, no future of sin. It's not new until it's old. The new creation is forever new. The new birth is not a modification of the old man through a change in behavior. The new birth is a new creation of a whole new man. The old man with his sin nature went into the grave and he's gone. And the new man with a whole new nature was born when Jesus was raised from the dead. Titus 3, when God our Savior revealed His kindness and love, He saved us not by the righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And because of His grace, He made us right in His sight. And He gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Now back to first Adam and last Adam. Romans 5 verse 18. Wow, therefore, as through one man's offense, what is that? Adam eating from the wrong tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, what is that? Jesus bearing our sin on the cross. The free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam's, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, that is not 
your obedience or my obedience. One man's obedience, Jesus Christ on the cross, many will be made righteous. Last Adam, Jesus Christ, came to forever remove the sin of first Adam and bring about a restoration and a redemption that is far greater than what was lost in first Adam's sin. Today, we can receive unfailing, eternal righteousness through Jesus. His righteousness is a righteousness we can never lose because it does not depend on us. John 1, but as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who what? Believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're born of God. That means, spiritually speaking, we are partakers of the divine nature of God, as it says in 2 Peter 1.4. We are His children. We are His own. We no longer have the spiritual DNA of first Adam. We are no longer sinners by nature. We are no longer sons of disobedience. Adam's disobedience. We are sons of obedience. Christ's obedience. We are, look, nobody is in no man's land, okay? You're either dead in sin or you are alive in Christ. And if we don't split these atoms in our belief system, we're going to believe that we have two natures battling inside of us. We've got the devil on one shoulder with his pitchfork. We've got God on the other shoulder pointing a bony finger of condemnation, right? Two natures battling. And that is a mongrel religion. And it will, the power of the gospel cannot be released unless we split that. And we say, I'm no longer in Adam. He is not my head. Sin shall not have dominion over me, not to define me, nor to control me. I'm in my head who is Jesus Christ. And I come from a heavenly kingdom. Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now I want to stop for a second. All of those verbs, you can look this up. Made us alive, saved us, made us to sit. Aorist Greek verb tense. Past tense meaning done. It is finished. It is not going to happen again. It has already happened. He has put us in this place, in this position, seated in Christ. And then from the ages, in, in the ages to come, meaning from that moment that you were seated there into all eternity, He set you there so that He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
and that not of yourselves. It is a gift 100% of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship. And the New Living says, His masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now that phrase, prepared beforehand, it's a Greek word that means measured in advance. Like a master tailor would measure a garment. And that word workmanship or masterpiece is the Greek word poema. And poema is the masterpiece created by the master craftsman. Or like a perfectly crafted and fitted garment created by a master tailor. God, knowing what He wanted to do in you and through you, measured you in advance, knowing the garment that He wanted to clothe you with. He created you with a certain personality and certain gifts and talents and abilities so that you would be perfectly suited for the good works that He prepared for you. And this is the only garment that is going to fit you. No other garment will fit. It is never too late to learn this. I'm learning it. At 58, I'm learning it. This mantle, this calling is tailor-made for you. No other identity will fit. You take on any other identity, you will be uncomfortable. You will even be miserable. But this garment, this is God's expression of the new creation that you are and I am will fit like a glove and will bring us so much joy. And there are no limits to what God can do through someone who knows who they are and accepts who they are in Jesus. When we know who we are in Jesus, the power of the gospel will be released. And all we have to do is be ourselves. Be ourselves. And we will be overflowing with fruitfulness and effectiveness and fulfillment. Amen.